Okay, getting ready to do the episode. Got myself a little hot pastrami sandwich. <laughs> and a little soda. And oh, wait. No, where's the mustard? Damn it. Does it keep. Oh, okay. It's jar of mustard. Seems pretty unassuming. All right. Here we go. Doing with my mustard gas, Brian? Mustard gas? Yes, mustard gas. I was looking for mustard. Who keeps mustard in the nerd cave? First, you make flesh-eating bacteria and you put it in a Nutella jar. Now you have mustard gas. You know what, Brian? What's wrong with you? You know what, Brian? That was an antique. I wanted to share that on the show today. Thank you very much. Can I go to the hospital? No. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I'm Brian Moriarty. Hello, good sir. Hello. How are ya? I am good. Das ist gut. Yes, I das have started rehearsals good. for another show. Uh, naturally, as, as one named Brian does. First one in a year. This is actually a tougher one, because Les Mis is, is fun because it was challenging, because the, the rhythms in the show were very erratic. It was more or less designed to sound like speech. Mm-hmm. This is very much, very musical. I mean, it's Kiss Me, Kate. But this is the 1999 uh, revision that they made to the score. So at times, it's very, very much the traditional 1940s kind of big band sound to it. But it's also times where it's very, very jazzy, which means syncopation, which means you think you're on the beat, and then you're like, now you have to be off the beat. And that sucks. <laughs> Especially for someone who has a hard time with rhythm, like I do. So... Fun challenge. Fun challenge. But it sounds like you're, you're having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple solos, which is nice. That's nice. I get to help open the show, so that's kind of cool. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Uh, solos, you mean? or Oh, is that what you mean by open the show? No, no. Helping open the show, like uh, like the beginning of the show. Like, I'm one of the first oh, people on the show. I, I have a line at the beginning. I see. I know, know nothing about, I know nothing about theater. Kiss I Me, know. Kate is great, because it is, <clears throat> it is the first, in my opinion... It's not really the first. I'm sure our theater friends would debate that. But it's a meta-musical. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is the whole musical is a story of a theater company performing Taming of the Shrew. And yet, the characters who are performing Taming of the Shrew also tell a modern story of Taming of the Shrew. Oh. Like I said, meta. <laughs> very meta. That's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. Very, very cool. <clears throat> I'm looking forward to. I I just want the show to be open already because it's like it's it's a fun score to to perform. So and also be my first time dancing in a long time, which uh, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not. But we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll um, find out. Just get up there and flail your arms around. You'll be fine. Yeah. How are you, by the way? I'm I'm pretty good. You know, I'm I'm slimming down, man. I know. You're... Everyone at work like thinks there's something wrong with me. You're losing faster than I am. You're making me look like a fool. <laughs> you, no. You're you doing just fine. You continue doing what you're doing. You're having no problem at all. I just, you know, I think my body was just like, get this off of me now. I don't want it on You me do look, longer. look, I mean, now with the new haircut, you lost the beard and you're 
thinner. You look like a different person now. I look like I'm 16. Yeah. I look like a kid these days. We'll have to tweet a picture. I think we're going to put up, we should put up a picture of us recording tonight so people see our, our, our weight loss results. So that's going to have to happen. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know if I'm photo ready yet. Oh, you're fine. You're 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 totally photo ready. In fact, you got a picture of you in a suit you can show if you want. Oh yeah, I could put that up there if I if yeah. people really want to see that. I don't know if want people want to see that, but yeah. I, I so I feel good. I'm you know, <clears throat> eating better, exercising, all that good stuff. So folks, continuing on our mission for July to talk about great points in American history. Well we do have to talk about one point that is not talked about very much right. in American history. Um, and some people might argue, well, this is more of a world history event than it is a U.S. history event. Well, and they would be right. It is. Yes. But yeah. at the same time, it's it's important to acknowledge that, you know, America had an extremely important involvement in it. Even if it was towards the latter half, right. it's still a part of it and therefore very important. And so well, what are we referring to? Well, we're talking about the Great War, right? World War One. Right. Folks, it's crazy to think this year is the 100th anniversary of the start of the war, particularly yeah. the inciting incident, right, which was the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand. Which which has passed us already. Yeah, it happened about a week or uh, June so twenty ago. June 28th. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the reason why we think it's significant to American history is America would not be the way it was today had it not been for what was started in World War One. Not even looking at World War II, which is obviously this is the setup. This is the <laughs> this is the prequel to the epic finale that was World War II. Um, but I mean, in its own right, with that war alone, changed the country, completely modernized it, changed the the American way of life as we understood it. Uh, so that's why it deserves our attention, you know. And it, and it simply deserves to be remembered to to recall the sacrifices that were made. And to remember the lessons that were really taught from this war, <clears throat> lessons that perhaps that generation that followed it didn't exactly learn. Yeah. Uh, but that we have an opportunity now to reflect on and say, look, this is what catastrophes happened in the first war. Right. That led us to even greater catastrophes in the second war. Yeah. We need to prevent a third of this scope and scale from ever truly happening again. Yeah. And... You're, you're quite right. You know, this is a, a staple of American growth, if you think about it. It was, it, was a, it was a moment when we decided to launch ourselves into the world as, as a real superpower, to take the opportunity to, to grow and to defend ourselves and build an industry that would really propel us forward with the Second World War. Arguably, one would, one would say the Second World War really pushed us into that world superpower uh, position, but this was the the setup for that. Yeah, and agreed. And it's important to remember the sacrifices uh, of all of those people, and and we have to acknowledge, obviously, that you know American involvement in the war was actually for a very short period of time. It was very crucial to the eventual outcome of the war, but we wouldn't have even gotten to that part if it wasn't for the the endurance and the the bravery of you know, all the European countries yeah. that were involved in this. And so we're, we're talking about a very large scope of history. But, you know, we have to kind of marry these two because, yes, we're committed to doing uh, this month in reflection of American history. 
but we can't ignore the fact that we have this important 100-year anniversary, so we're, we're going to kind of marry the two together. Agreed. And it, like any good story, we have to explain how we get there, so we're going to kind of Tarantino it. We're going to, we're going to, we, we've kind of explained why we're doing it, and then we're going to go back and we're going to work your way into how we get to that point, because to your point... The American impact really happens at the right at the very end and then post the war. Right. Right. So um, that being said, here's what we're going to do. Uh, folks, if you know our podcast at this point, you know the two things that Eric is passionate about. One, ancient Egypt. And two, war. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> particularly these two wars, this war and World War Two. Me, as we all know, I am the kind of the, the, the Catholic, the Christian kind of aficionado and with comic book knowledge and i just kind of throw in random bits and pieces here so i'm gonna let eric steer this episode quite a bit i'll be offering color commentary and maybe some a little bit of st- i'll be kind of doing i'll be the gps as it were very good but eric will be the one who kind of already knows his way he's just using the gps for extra support so <laughs> that's true yes i i have always been fascinated by stories of the war because my family in many cases uh has been involved in one way or another and so i, yeah. I grew up hearing those stories and I, I always wanted to kind of understand and learn from these important events because I've seen so many instances in which people haven't. And, you know, let, let's let's do something a little different than we normally do here at Nerds in History because we don't normally focus a lot on dates. We don't always take the totally linear approach to things. Sometimes we kind of jump around and we focus on those things that are important. But we can't really talk about this war without a starting point and kind of continuing along that line. So it'll be a little different than maybe you're used to listening to, but I think that we can keep it interesting without focusing on the dates as being the the thing that propels it along. Correct. I mean, as we get closer to the actual war starting, I think the dates are going to be very important. But... Yeah. For context, you have to understand the, the period of time. And so many history teachers, for example, will rely on dates just for something to talk about, just for, you know bringing up content yeah we're doing it to bring up context which is a, a very big difference yeah so let's start right how do we how do we begin this story what how do we to quote shakespeare where do we lay our scene well really what we're talking about is the the eventual collapse of traditional european monarchies and the reaction that politicians and the people of those countries would have in, in trying to either hold on to them for for all you know dear effort or change and change with the times. So what we're, what we're really talking about is like the peak heading slowly into the decline of the imperial era, right? Correct. Where Europe was ma- the majority of Europe at this point was under some form of monarchy and had some had many territories across the world. Yeah, yeah. Britain was the prime example for the world to fall. It was the largest empire. It had an impressive navy. It was making technical technological advances and strives forward with uh, the Industrial Revolution. It was an old and very traditional monarchy, but also open to democracy and, and new ideas. And so right. it was a, a beacon, really, for a lot of countries. It didn't always work out terribly well for those who were subjects of the British Empire, but you know, any subjects of any empire is going to you know, generally right. not be... Uh, uh, given uh, an even shake. Yeah, and as we said before, and we were obviously quoting somebody else, the sun never set on the British Empire. And it's so true. Yeah, they had colonies all around the globe. There was always British territory that was uh, that was in the daylight, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. But there was also a lot of uh, kind of, um, how do I want to say, maybe not as much unity in other parts of Europe, particularly in northern central Europe, right? So we're looking at uh, the territories of Germany. 
right. uh, and their neighbor to the east, Prussia. Uh, but you do have some very charismatic, very powerful figures that kind of come to light in that uh, 1970 or sorry, 1870s time period, uh, like like Bismarck, right? Who is this powerful, very charismatic, very kind of uh, risque leader? He's the kind of person who takes chances and goes for big gains, uh, knowing that he could potentially end up with a big loss. Uh, but it pays off because he ends up unifying these these German territories uh, under Prussia and creating this very powerful, very centralized Germany. Yeah, but keep in mind that even though Germany at this point was not unified as one nation, these were still countries and cultures that had a tremendous amount of influence throughout Europe. The Habsburg family sure. alone has its hand in several very powerful monarchies, including Britain at this point, oh, as yeah. well as... Uh, I want, there's a couple other countries, Austria, Austria, Hungary, yeah, uh, Russia, Germany, yeah. England, uh, Queen Victoria, the great Queen Vic was still on the throne at this time, right? So she was the, the great grandmother and grandmother of many of the monarchs of Europe at yeah. that time. Folks, we, we have to remember that Queen Victoria and Marie Antoinette were related. They were, they were distant cut. They were not that far away. I think they were like second cousins. Yeah. So crazy. I think two very iconic historical figures. Not that far removed. And, you know, Bismarck does something interesting in, pr in proclaiming William I, or Wilhelm I, excuse me, as, as Kaiser of, of, of Germany. Wilhelm. Wilhelm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really catapults Germany forward and, and propels us forward with the, with the Franco-Prussian War. Mm -hmm. A war that was humiliating to the French. And they suffered several devastating losses. And it really showed that Germany was now on the map. And it was not just moving forward as a as a new empire, but it was showing that it was the new militaristic superpower of Central Europe. Right. And obviously, Austria-Hungary, which shared a common language with their German neighbors to the north, wanted to form a, a stronger alliance. And so this is when you start seeing a lot more of these treaties being signed these mutual defense pacts that are being created this if anyone messes with you all mess with them let's be more powerful together ideas and folks this becomes a complex web of treaties and we'll, we'll get to kind of this how the, it really just all just happens so i mean in the grand scheme of things happened so quickly it really didn't happen quick overnight but yeah like you had essentially three central powers that were allied at this period, right? So you had Germany, you had Austria, Hungary, and you had Italy. Uh, Italy would eventually go turncoat on its on its neighbors yeah, to the which north, which is also a new country. We, have, we remember the Italian monarchy was only established in the mid nineteenth century. It was predominantly the papal states mm -hmm. for a large portion of it, which was you know the Pope having most of Italy at that point, and then a couple of other city states that had you know either dukes or they had other. Yeah. governments and now they're finally united and the pope at this point has been pretty much uh sequestered to the boundaries of the vatican right. hence forming the vatican city uh but so, that happens later so a lot of very new empires all trying to position and, and make their way uh show that they are big players on the field and they're up going against some other empires that have been around for a lot longer. Albeit, I will admit that Austria-Hungary had been around for quite some time. That was a really coalesced and, and um, uh, established uh, power in Central Europe. But, you know, Russia, England, and France 
were the other big superpowers, all with colonies elsewhere in the world, all with huge territorial gains and a lot of power behind them. Yeah, and France was the only one that was non uh, Sorry. And France was the only major European power at this point that was non-monarchial at this yeah, point. Yeah, it, it had pretty much done away with it. And yeah. that's a whole other episode, something we yeah. touched on before, in fact. But you'll find that Russia and France kind of had a buddy-buddy kind of friendship and relationship. And then, of course, England and France were starting to bury the hatchet and put a lot of that former uh, rivalry behind them and moving forward with, with a much more um, important relationship they had to they, they had to evolve their relationship to contend with everything that was going on in central europe but then you have these balkan states that are very interesting because they are thrown right in the middle of all these huge superpowers that want to project dominance and influence over them uh, and serbia being one of them uh, very close to the austrian border this was a territory where there was a huge opportunity for either Russia or Austria-Hungary to kind of gain. Russia had seen itself as the protector of the Slavic people in the Balkans, right? It, it saw them as its ethnic duty to protect these individuals. But uh, Austria-Hungary was testing the waters and getting even more confident because of the victories that Germany was having and was more or less kind of forcing conflicts. And so it's not a big surprise that you have these Serbian nationalists who really want to um, make an impact and make their, their voice heard. Uh, and, and I think that kind of brings us to 1914 in a way. Yeah. Because 1914, that's when we're talking about the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And ladies and gentlemen, it's important to clarify the musical group is fine. <laughs> You weren't going to say it, I was. They they are alive and well. Um, the actual Archduke Franz Ferdinand, however, not so much. <laughs> no, not not so much indeed, no. Very, very sad uh, in general. Um, I love the, the, to state, though, that I believe it was... The emperor's name was Franz Josef, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, his uncle. The Franz Josef is the formal name for what I lovingly refer to as the mutton chop stash. Yes, exactly. Yes. This is also the age of ridiculous facial hair. And let oh it be known. Oh my God. Handlebars, horseshoes. Quite honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if the, outbreak, if the outbreak of war wasn't due to his assassination. It would have been lice otherwise. Yeah, or it would have been uh, people just competing with each other's facial, facial hair. I, I, think. I would have loved to see that, to be totally honest. You have to get, you have to... Like mustaches that get so big, you have to hire like professional shrubbery artists. The Kaiser, <laughs> the Kaiser them. managed to make his mustache grow to the north. I don't know how the hell he does it. It's it's ridiculous. He's he makes crazy. Salvador Dali's mustache look like a. a, a yeah, he kind of looks like a warthog. Yeah, yeah. In in a way, he does. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And of course, we're talking about Kaiser Wilhelm II. Correct. And uh, who had you know succeeded his father, age of twenty nine. Very interesting person. Uh, very much villainized by the Allies during the war. But to be totally honest, he was just kind of a bit of a bumbling fool. He wasn't very popular in Germany. Uh, he was kind of obnoxious, very loud, very bombastic, didn't always think things out. His military commanders were oftentimes worried about things that he would say. And he ended up giving this disastrous interview to the UK uh, uh, paper, The Telegraph, where he pretty much 
went off on not just the British, but also the German people and insulted a lot of folks. Yeah. And this is in 1909. So this is, you know, a few years before the war even starts, he's already very much waning in popularity. Uh, but he has a lot of very important military commanders behind his back who will support him if he wants to kind of go to war and will more or less take charge and do it the way that they feel it should be done. And let's face it, in the industrial age, Britain was starting to make the rest of the world a little bit nervous because Britain was starting to do some of their own advancements with gun warfare, with gun technology, with naval technology. Sure. By 1914, Britain had already introduced a whole new class of battleship. The Dreadnought. It had been around for a while. The Dreadnought, that's yes. right. And now we have this age of steel-clad uh, warships that the Russians were actually also quite experienced with, as they had had major engagements with the Japanese uh, in the wars that they were having with them preceding the First World War. Uh, so they British were kind of innovating it. The Russians were proving that it could be used, and the Japanese were proving that they knew how to do it quite well. And I think that Germany was very much threatened by this too. And so there's a bit of an arms race going on at this time to, to try to develop the more powerful ship and to take control of the Navy, which quite honestly cuts off Britain from a lot of its power. You also have a rise in uh, the cultural zeitgeist of Europe too, right? Yeah. There was this whole sense of nationalism now because you had these countries that were coming together. It was less about what town you were from. It was more about that you were, you identified with the country, yeah. right? I was not just from Paris. I am French. Yeah, and or, it, it's that militaristic nationalist viewpoint that right. was so strong in Germany and Austria-Hungary that really is what led to the war. Because this assassination was minor yeah. okay this guy was not well liked in austria at all when austrians woke up to the news of this and was reading it in their morning newspapers they continued to drink their coffee and eat their strudel because they simply didn't care and this is like this i mean we, we could spend the whole episode just talking about the assassination but this is one security failure after another yeah so let's just summarize it real quick he's in serbia on a quote-unquote visit with you know the territory. They don't want him there in the first place. He has a couple of planned arrangements. He goes to one, uh, and in his motorcade, uh, a terrorist organization known as the Black Hand uh, had planned to have a bomb go off. under. It was supposed to go off under the Archduke's car, thus killing him. Yeah, they, they threw a bomb, and, and they more or less missed, and it exploded nearby and damaged some some property and support number one. some you know, civilians. It misses. Yeah. So everyone freaks out, and they drive away. Now, normally, in this case, that was, would never have been an issue because there would have been adequate military support there. But they weren't there because, and I, sorry, I'm going to swear, I sh** you not. The answer was because the uniforms were too dirty. Yeah. They were not up to snuff for a royal visit. If so, only there had been a laundry mat nearby. We could have avoided the entire first If the world. washing machine and dryer had been invented at this point in time, folks, <laughs> yeah. the world would be a very different place. Yeah. I'm or not even kidding. just some very nice lady out in a field doing some laundry, you know, excuse me, madam, maybe use this board so the water and yeah, cleans right. it off. Uh, that didn't happen. Yeah. And, and so what do they do? They keep driving along. And they had a parking in front of a coffee shop. Now, this gentleman, the male member of the Black Hand, is sitting there thinking, oh, the whole mission has failed, having strudel and coffee. And he's about to go walk away, and he, he walks outside, and who does he see? The Archduke and his wife, Sophie, uh, sitting in their convertible yeah. car, by the way, open-topped, 
just wondering, oh, uh, and everyone's like, well, should we be concerned? Nah, nah, they're not going to strike twice in one day. That's so unlikely. I, I can imagine the situation. He's sitting there and he's watching them and they're probably like stretching, and, like lifting their arms up and kind of like exposing their their pectoral areas. And he's looking at his gun and he's looking at them and he looks back at the gun and then he runs over there and, yeah. and, and shoots So the him. young man just goes and he doesn't even actually, he was like, is this seriously going to, like, it was, he was almost dumbfounded that it was going to be this easy. But yet he turns his head. He doesn't even aim. He, like, he points the gun in a general direction, and he turns his head as he fires. And he unloads pretty much the whole clip into their chests. I mean, they, they, they were dead well, kind pretty of. much. Yeah. The first shot hit Franz Ferdinand in the neck, and he started bleeding out Yeah, quite profusely. And his famous last words were, Sophie, Sophie, stay alive for the children. Right. Because he knew he wasn't going to make it. Sophie's obviously freaking out because they were actually happily married and they sure. did have children. And unfortunately, you know, the, the assassin goes to finish the job. And you're right, he does. So the the, the Archduchess, who was also not popular because she was not royal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big problem in Russia as well. And we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, they were royal. They're just not so right. But this yeah. happens and <laughs> the political powers in the capital in Vienna, they are quote unquote outraged by the assassination nobody's outraged this was an excuse exactly this was an excuse to go to war this was an excuse to invade the balkans this was an excuse to gain some territory from there and quite honestly they knew what the result was going to be because russia of course if they're going to declare war on serbia russia is an ally to serbia and russia is going to declare war on on austria hungary and germany correct so that's exactly what ends up happening so one month after the assassination right and one week from today actually folks uh 100 years ago so july 28th about the same time or actually the same exact day our second episode will be coming out yeah marks the the day that austria hungary declares war on serbia the emperor franz it is the emperor franz joseph it is franz joseph yes declares war on serbia and there you go this is this is the moment everything goes to hell. Yeah. It's like a really bad poker game where everyone is calling their bluff and they're all in. And then finally someone deals the hand and everyone has to give up their chips. Yeah. It's just like it is so unlikely that you're going to get all everybody at the table uh, on board. But yet it happened. And it's just this cacophony of uh, yeah violence. And the very corrupts. next day... Uh, Germany declares war on Russia as an ally of Austria-Hungary in response. Uh, And then just a few days later, declares war on France, knowing that France as an ally of Russia is going to also declare war on them. So they they declare war first. Uh, And they do it because they want to get into Belgium as quickly as possible. And this is an interesting parallel to draw between the First and the Second World War. Because what you're what you're seeing is this same attempt that Hitler did successfully in the Second World War, which is to invade through neutral Belgium and move as quickly into France as possible, spearheading it straight for Paris. You cut off the head of the snake, the body dies as well. The idea was get to Paris, take control, everything else will fall apart. Germany did this very effectively when it invaded through the Ardennes using its its tanks and its its blitzkrieg tactics but the original attempt at it during the first world war by by the german uh empire uh it it didn't have exactly the desired effect uh it was horrible for the belgians don't get me wrong 
there were so many horrible crimes committed in Belgium. And it's very upsetting. Uh, Beer just being poured everywhere on the yeah. streets. No, I wish I wish that's what it was. No, no, it was far more heinous than uh, that. Yeah. It, it, you know, there were so many people who were against the Germans that you had all these kind of private fighters who were simply, you know, you know, shooting from their windows to try to fight back German troops. And their response was to, you know, round up civilians and have them summarily executed in front of groups of people. So, you know, in one instance, 600 people were, were gathered in Brussels and, and shot to death. Awful. So Really awful. Yeah, and this just begins the first horrors of, of this First World War. Um, because you, you now have Austria-Hungary entering into the Eastern Front. You have Germany beginning its offensive on what would become the Western Front. And you have behind this whole offense two very intelligent, very deadly, and kind of strangely polarizing figures you have Eric von Ludendorff and Paul von Hindenburg, both Vons. Uh, they are... And you're, like talk, you're, talk, you're talking about, of course, within Germany at this point. Yeah, we're talking about... This is, this is, these are the German war commanders. They are the ones who are actually leading the offensive against these, the, the Allied nations, what would eventually become the Allied nations. And uh, they are a force to be reckoned with. But they would later go on, and one would fall into ruin by the end of the war. The other would eventually become president. But they would define themselves over the next four years. And they would do so with some of the worst heinous carnage uh, the world had ever seen to that point. Yeah. So the Battle of the Frontiers, which essentially takes place uh, beginning on, on around August 22nd, was the Allied response to this this invasion and this thrust towards Paris, towards um, towards France. And France had to move quick. They had to mobilize as many troops as possible. In fact, the governor of Paris organized this, um, this relief effort by commandeering all of the taxis in the city and using it to transport troops out of Paris and as close to the, the line as possible. Smart, actually. Really, really clever. Very smart. So, you know... The horse-drawn carriage was still a primary means of getting people and munitions and artillery around. We have to remember, folks, this was the last major war that was fought with horse warfare. That's right. Uh, with actual cavalry. Yeah. And <laughs> and in many of the cases, they were far more effective than the cars. The cars at the time were not these robust Jeeps that you find later in the Second World War. They were just starting out, and as such, they weren't you know, designed to be going off-road as often, even though they eventually ended up doing so. Horses were more valuable because they could, you know, climb around a no-man's land and actually be okay. And they had also, that's where the term workhorse comes from. They had, they had horses that were bred to pull large amounts of weight. Yeah. So my point being, though, that they, they were sending as many people to, to stop the seemingly unstoppable German offensive. Uh, and they eventually did uh, put an end to them because about a month later, they were at a stalemate. Neither side could advance any further. And with it begins the first introduction of trench warfare. It's so important to emphasize the misery that trench warfare brings. It is horrendous. It is essentially walking around in your grave and knowing that and being as uncomfortable as possible knowing that the very next moment you could die. 
You could die from a stray bullet. You could die from a mine being set off underneath you by people who were digging beneath your feet to kill you. Uh, it could come in the form of a shell that lands only inches away from your buddy, but ends up killing you. It can also come in the form of a, of a can of mustard gas. That's right. We joked about it in our in our cold open. That, this but is the dawn gentlemen, of biological warfare. Yeah, yeah. It, this is no joke. Yeah. Uh, chemical weapons are horrible. And the very first chemical weapons used by the Germans in 1915 was chlorine gas. Yeah, and the reason why it's called mustard gas is because of the color it emits. It emits a well, we're not talking about mustard gas yet. Mustard yeah. gas came later, and that okay. was even worse. We're talking okay. about chlorine gas initially, uh, which, you know, in some cases was as simple as soaking it in like a rag and, and, you know, like igniting that, setting that on fire and just throwing it in. Chlorine gas was so unassuming. People didn't even know. You know, they were here in their trenches and they assumed that what was coming at them was a simple smoke bomb that the Germans had sent off to cover the offensive. Yeah. Uh, but what they quickly realized when they started choking to death, uh, salivating uncontrollably and being blinded was that they were being introduced to something they'd never seen before. And... Uh, it's believed that nearly 1 million casualties were wow. caused just by gas and chemical warfare. And they didn't know about this. So, I mean, by the end of the war, you had men being issued sure. gas masks. Oh, and very effective point, ones yeah. for that matter. But by this point, it was just like, it was like this phantom it's The worst goddamn force. surprise you've ever had in your entire life. Exactly. But I do have to mention one thing. Yeah. There was, of course, the first Christmas in 1914, the Christmas Day truce, the famous Christmas Day truce. And one that um, I only wish could have set the tone for the rest of the war, because yeah. this is the only time this happens. But it is it is strangely um, strangely fitting. Yeah. Because, you know, up to this point, everyone knew war was coming, but everyone thought the war would be over by Christmas. That was a common thing you heard yeah, in the Yeah, that trenches. was the common trend, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the war will be over by Christmas. We'll all be home. The Germans will go back. They'll realize there's no chance they're going to they're gonna succeed because we have them at a stalemate. So... They're going to give up. That didn't happen. Yeah. And I think a lot of those soldiers, by the time Christmas came, had a very rude awakening. They realized they were going to be there for a hell of a lot longer than they thought they were going and to. And I can only imagine that the soldiers at this point were wondering, what, what are we really fighting for? Yeah. This isn't it, our cause. You in, know? in some cases, these trenches were 50 yards away or less. Yeah, you know, enough for you to literally just kind of be able to talk to the person on the other side. Yeah, many times they were much further away than that, but you know they were they were close enough that when that night came, when Christmas came, they were able to hear the other soldiers singing Christmas carols, the same thing that they were doing. Nobody wanted to kill each other that night. Nobody wanted to die on Christmas. Nobody wanted to send a letter home to their family. You know. Yeah. So saying that their loved one was was killed on Christmas and ruined Christmas forever. Yes, yeah, so what do they end up doing? They end up celebrating together. They end up celebrating together. They, they actually came up out of the trenches. And to be able to to do that, where at this point, you know, we're looking at about uh, three to four months of the beginning of trench warfare, to, to have that kind of trust in your enemy is is kind of incredible. Well, it's the amount of honor, right? The sense yeah. of honor that yeah. you're, you bring to warfare. Which is something that is you know, I, I think died in that moment. Yeah. I think the next morning that honor was dead because of the horrors that would be committed following it. Um, yeah. But 1914 was an interesting year, very interesting year. And it was just the very beginning. Uh, and it's important to, to mention that, you know, Russia, uh, 
who was now fighting the Eastern Front and fighting predominantly against the Austro-Hungarians because the Austro-Hungarians were hoping that essentially that, that Germany would aid them in defeating Russia first before doing anything else. But their lines of communication were horrible. They were being crossed all the time. Yeah. And so the Austro-Hungarians were being humiliated by the Serbians who had an amazing army. The Serbs had been fighting in the Balkans for years. They knew what they were doing. The Austrian army was highly unorganized and very poorly trained and was constantly being beaten back by the Serbians. It was embarrassment to them. And then here they are also trying to hold off the Russians. Uh, you know, at one point you had 3 million Russian soldiers on the Eastern Front within the beginning of the war. I mean, Russia had enormous resources available to them. But what they also lacked was training and proper equipments and supplies and dissent among their ranks as early as 1914. People are already saying, what the hell are we doing? Why are we fighting? Uh, and it would set the tone that would eventually cause the collapse of Russia, which would very nearly cause the victory of Germany. Yeah. Fascinating. And folks, we're, we're talking about just year one of the <laughs> war. We haven't even gotten into the rest of the years yet. Let's fast forward a little bit if that's okay. Well, let's go to 1915. Thank you. So we go to 1915. Germany now have realized, oh, we can also, we don't have to fight just on land or by sea. Though That's coming in the future. They consider this now total war because they're now using their Zeppelins, which was their marvel of air travel, for originally intended for leisure, <laughs> keep in mind. They're now using those to drop bombs. And now they think they can conquer the air as well as the, the land. Well, let's talk about the air for a minute because it is an interesting development. The airplane hadn't been around for very long. 1906. Yeah. yeah. That was the first flight at, at Kitty Hawk that was really successful. And what we're talking about is a uh, a glider with a with a, like a lawnmower engine on it, practically. Yeah, okay. it was a, yeah, it was not a plane by modern standards at all. Right. But the technological jump forward from 1906 to 1914 was pretty substantial. Yeah, within a couple of years, they'd already had a model with an actual cabin and fuselage right. on it. So uh, Even still, though, very primitive by by later standards, yeah. and even primitive by the, the latter half of the war. Uh, and with it came this whole new concept and idea of a soldier. It was something that, quite honestly, England desperately needed, because uh, the British people did not take kindly to the reports of the trench warfare. Nobody really did. But the British people were much more exposed to those reports. And they needed a hero. They needed somebody who was gallant and dashing and a gentleman, uh, not somebody who was covered in muck and mire and suffering from dysentery and, you know, being choked to death. By they wanted a knight gas. on their shining steed. Exactly. And it was in the form of, of these airmen that that came into existence. And the ace was therefore born. Uh, but these these airmen had pretty high fight fatality rates. I mean, I, I don't know what the statistic is exactly, but I would dare say like, you know, seven out of 10 were lucky if they made it back just because the technology was very primitive and you were very open, you were very exposed and not just to, you know, your, your fellow combatants in the air, but also to ground fire as well. Yeah. You know, the development of the anti-air gun also came as a result of the aircraft being used in war. Uh, but the very first planes to be fought with on the British side were pretty simple. You know, they had a, a rear machine gunner, they had a pilot, and the goal was to maneuver your plane 
so that you could uh, show the rear of your plane to your enemy and shoot them down. They didn't have forward-facing machine guns yet, but the Germans figured out a, a method by which to do this. Uh, and what it did was essentially synchronize the firing rate of the propeller and the machine gun. So the bolts were literally just passing through the propeller. God forbid there was a timing issue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, sometimes there were. Yeah. And, and, and people died. Uh, but more often than not, it, it gave that person who was in the gun seat or in the, in the, in the pilot seat uh, the weapons to be uh, devastatingly effective yeah. against its enemy. Um, it, it was a very, very unique development. And, of course, it would give birth to a particular legend in Germany. Of course, we're referring to none other than the Red Baron. The Red Baron, who ironically was shot down not by a plane, but by a soldier on the ground. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Go figure. It's worth mentioning um, that that machine gun invention uh, was was created by a name by, by a gentleman of the name of Fokker. I'm serious. I'm making not making. Was his first name Gaylord? No, it wasn't. But. Uh, it was known for this 19-month period where the British were essentially on the disadvantage as the Fokker Scourge. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Oh, my God. It was the Fokker Scourge. Uh, that Fokker. Um, he... That Fokker, yeah. indeed. <laughs> but eventually, the British would, would catch up to it and, and take the advantage. The long-range bomber was created as a result of this war. Uh, the seaplane was created as a result of this war. And the Zeppelin was used incredibly effectively against the British uh, because by 1915, total war was in effect. So that yeah. means there was no chivalry, um, no no kindness to be shown to your enemy. If they were in front of you, you would kill them. Yeah. And if they were civilians, they were civilian targets. So let's be clear here. Britain didn't really want any involvement with the war at first, but they brought the war to them is what you're saying. Well, their, their alliance with France meant they had no choice. And if they were going to stop Germany, they realized they had to join the French. They, they had no choice. They had to enter this war. Again, they had gone all in and they, their bluff was called. So. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, with it, the Zeppelins would, would bomb London. Not nearly as bad as the Blitz would bomb England during the Second World War by, by, by the Nazis. But the air was a scary place then. But so much technological advancement in just a period of four years, the airplane was completely reinvented, essentially. Uh, and this war is what really brought that about. Yeah, we could do a whole other episode, one on aviation, because that's a fascinating story in its own, but two, aviation warfare. Yeah. And three, war heroes. <laughs> on war heroes, yeah. yeah you know. We should. We should touch on the Red Baron again when we get a chance, because we just don't have time, folks. We have so much to cover. Yeah. We just, we can't. Yeah. But we will. I, we've committed to doing that. I'm glad we at least brought him up. Uh, one other thing we need to bring up quickly that you can actually go back and already listen to, because we talked about this next event in a previous episode. And of course, I'm referring to the nine-month disastrous campaign uh, in Gallipoli uh, against the Ottoman Turks, because by this time, the Turks had joined uh, the war on the side of the Central Powers. And if you want to hear just how much of a blunder it was, go back a few episodes and listen to the, This is Nerdonomy! episode yeah we're, it's we, we do kind of a mishmash of uh failed invasions and terrible military exactly. blunders exactly yeah. well so then we get to i think a good cliffhanger for our first episode um because 
Yes, now that we know that Britain is involved with the war, that is how America becomes involved with the war. We have to remember that America's foreign policy at this point in time was one of strict isolationism. I shouldn't say that. Not strict. Not strict. As far as the Eastern Hemisphere was concerned, they want they didn't want anything to do with it. Right. We were talked about with TR, Monroe Doctrine, right? If it, right. if it crossed into the Americas or the Western Hemisphere, we were all about that. We clearly had no issue because look what we, we did were creating with this, our own this, issues. Exactly. Look what we did the Spanish American <laughs> War. But otherwise, not our problem. Until we start putting our differences aside with Great Britain and start, you know, trading with them and building economic ties with yeah. them. To the point where we start getting into the arms race, too. We start using our industrial power to help them out. Again, being that we are in a foreign policy of quote-unquote isolationism, we don't want to look like we're, we're aiding them. So we're smuggling weapons on cruise liners. Yeah. Well, of course the Germans found out about ships, it. merchant ships, but yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And merchant ships. Well, the Germans found out about this, and they were not happy about that. One bit. So what? Are the, and the Germans had already, in their own arms race, been developing... You know, U-boats, they were using efficient underwater warfare for combat. Which is a total U-boat, unrestricted war offensive. I mean, these guys fired on anything and didn't care about the consequences. Correct. And what we considered was the final insult. Because they had already been attacking our, our vessels along the way. They, they were not dumb. They knew what we were what we were doing. But finally, they attacked the Lusitania. On May 7th of 1915, Lusitania was a cruise liner. It was not a merchant vessel. Yeah. And almost 1,200 people were killed, and 128 Americans were on that vessel. So now America wasn't just tied to it economically. Now we felt there was a sense of revenge involved. And we had and we had to do something now, because now the war had come to us, whether we wanted it, whether we liked it or not. Even still, it would take another two years before American armed involvement uh, would be that, that key and deciding factor. And that's where we're going to stop for tonight. Right. Perfect cliffhanger. Like, I, I think so. But, 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 but Eric, what happens next? <laughs> well, there are a lot of books written on it, but tune in next week Indeed. and listen, because I think we make it come to life. So let's get to some listener feedback, shall we? Yes, we shall. This week in listener feedback. So first, let's, let's kind of just touch on a quick general thing. Yeah, uh, people hated us in June. <laughs> yeah, we got we got some we got some pretty strong feedback. Um, the one that we did want to address uh, outright uh, was we got a couple of pieces of negative feedback about the global warming episode. The greenhouse gases are good. We're not going to go into detail about them, but there were essentially two major criticisms: one that we focused too much on the science and not on the history; second. Uh, one of our listeners was a bit upset that we felt it necessary to bring up the relevance of, or he was questioning the relevance of why the the big coal and big oil companies, why that was relevant to the argument that they were using William Morris as a means to spread propaganda and call into question the science behind global warming. So let's go to the first one, shall we? We'll work our way forward from there. What are your thoughts on this whole? You know, honestly, I think I can just kind of sum it up as this. Um, we love all feedback. We love critical. We love positive. And I think that I I understand where each of these folks are coming from because I I think it all comes down to perception, right? I I, I can kind of see their their points and and what they're making. And I don't want to say they're they're not 
valid, but at the same time, I think that they were kind of missing the point of what we were talking about. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. History is being made now. History was made one second ago, one day ago, one year ago, 1,000 years ago. It's always happening around us. And it's different for a history podcast to look at something that's so current, uh, even though we did address you know, the, the initial discovery, if you will, of global warming and its 160-some-odd-year history. I think that it was a bit um, unexpected by some of our listeners. And some of you, you know, took strongly to it, and you have every right to do so. I just remind you, you know, don't don't judge a book by its cover. We've had, at this point, you know, 94, this will be our 95th episode. And this is 94th episode. This is 94th, excuse me. Well, we're going to have our 95th is what I meant to say. And, and we've got a lot of really great content that's out there. And, you know, there's been episodes of Star Trek where I've watched them and kind of gone... You know, what, what's going on with this? This is not Star Trek. I remember that episode in DS9 where, you know, essentially Cisco has this, like, orb experience and he gets sent back into the 19, you know, I think it was the 1920s or the 1930s and he's dealing with racism. So, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, what, what's going on? But it made a point. It talked about something that was relevant to me in that moment, even though it wasn't Star Trek per se, it was in the spirit of Star Trek. So yeah. I think what we did was in the spirit of Nerds on History, just maybe different than what you folks were expecting. Yeah, I did. And we, I do feel, no, you're right, we did provide historical context for the facts. And you're right, history is not just archaic. It's also contemporary. I agree yeah. with that. To the point of uh, the William Morris argument, I, I, I'm just going to have to respectfully disagree, to be honest. I mean, it's. I think it is relevant to it. And I appreciate what, what you're saying, but I do think it is relevant because... The fact that people are trying to hide what is going on uh, is disabling the people who are trying to do good from making the, ne the necessary changes. Yeah. And this will go down in history as probably one of the, as unfortunately, as a darker footnote. Uh, and so that's why I felt it was worth bringing up. But, you know, I want to thank everybody who gave their, their feedback, you know. Whatever Absolutely, that was. yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we appreciate bringing we that do. to the table, and we're sorry we didn't have time to to read it in full. It's not that we felt like you know we didn't have uh, a valid response to it or argument against it or what have you. It's just that we quite literally don't have time because this is such a huge undertaking that we're doing with our with our current episode. In fact, yeah. we've got to end it right here. We we don't have any time left. Please don't forget you can go over to our website nerdonomy.com anytime if you want to leave leave us some listener feedback. Uh, and while you're there, why not click on that donate button and leave us, leave us a little bit of money. We, we, we don't mind that. That, that kind of helps us, uh, do what we do here at Nerdonomy. True. We can take anything as little as a dollar. Yeah. And if you have more than a dollar, you can also support us through our audible.com affiliation by yeah. clicking the link on That's the right. That's right. Cause we don't get paid. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> you can help us out that way. And again, just as a reminder, all money goes to supporting what we do here at Nerdonomy. Uh, we, we honestly don't see any of this money even go in our pocket. It all goes to advertising. It all goes to, uh, fixing up the nerd cave and getting us equipment. Correct, so. yeah, yeah. We're at least a few years away from that dream happening, so. Yeah. Folks, it's that time. So, uh, until we meet again, stay nerdy. Tune into us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. <laughs> Eric. Do you at least have some visine? Fine. God. Crybaby. Hey, why didn't they invent ketchup gas? Ketchup gas?